Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us, or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. The Buck Sexton Show. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Coming to you live from Savannah, Georgia. Thank you so much for uh, hanging out with me today. We've got a Freestyle Friday in effect, and I have a lot of news to talk to you about. We're going to deep dive into what's going on with the uh, the tremendous announcement. We had it live for you on the show last night about North Korea uh, negotiations, negotiations over North Korea's nuclear program. But we also uh, have some information that it just, I'm trying to see when this broke to make sure I don't, yeah, just in the last few hours. That Trump, not content to look just at the issue of global trade and tariffs and take on China for its manipulations of currency and and markets, but also uh, to add North Korea into the mix. And then today, Trump lawyers, according to the Wall Street Journal, are seeking a deal with Mueller to get the Russia probe to finally finish up. This is high stakes poker, my friend. This is big. I mean, this is the president of the United States who is going against all the conventional wisdom on trade right now and is like, this is how it's going to be. Who is... perhaps going to negotiate one of the most important and momentous national security diplomatic uh, detente in decades with North Korea. We'll see. We'll see. Early, I know. I'm not, I'm not, we don't celebrate too early here in the hut. One of our maxims. Don't celebrate too early. <laughs> you, know, you never want to be the guy who gets tackled on the two-yard line when you think you're, gonna, you're, you think you're in the end zone. No, no, no. Um. But then on top of that, Trump is willing to deal on the issue of his own presidency. I mean, to put the presidency in a sense at stake by saying, you know what? I'll sit down with Mueller. I've got nothing to hide. I'm not scared. Bring it, Mueller. Wow. Assuming this is true and this is going to happen, this is Trump really just calling out all of, yes, I'll say it, the, the haters, the doubters, the underminers. I'm not sure that's really a thing, but. We could we could make that a word. I, I love how with the internet these days you just start using a word enough and it becomes a word. They add it. So you know, the uh the undermining of Trump by all these different individuals. If he sits down with Mueller, which I will note, I think is a very bad idea and precarious, but then again, what do we what do we see from Trump time and again? People are like, Oh well, that's such a bad idea and and then he does it. And then all of a sudden they go, you know what? That wasn't a ba- that actually wasn't a bad idea. And today, for example, we've had Democrats 
talking about how bad the tax cuts were. I mean, and Nancy Pelosi was acting like the tax cuts were the were the equivalent of uh, some sort of war on the poor. I mean, it was just nonsense coming from her. And then today we see that the uh, jobs are up for th- for the month of February. Jobs are up three hundred thirteen thousand folks. Uh, you've got over 155 million people employed in the country right now, and manufacturing has added 263,000 jobs since Trump took office. The Dow was up today 441 points. What happened to, oh, China, the trade, it's, gonna, it's all going to fall apart. Tax cuts, it's terrible. He goes with what he thinks is right, and then we see what the results are. On Mueller, look, I understand the risks here, and I've been saying it all along. Mueller likes to get people for minor infractions, and he has a long history of doing this, and he may decide that he's going to stare down Trump on this one. But you know what? Trump is like, bring it. He will see. He sounds like he is willing to sit down with Mueller himself. And despite all of the legal evidence uh, to the contrary, he does not care. Um, He's decided that. He is going to sit down and have his say if this Russia nonsense will come to an end at some point, if the Mueller probe will agree at least that the Trump portion of this has to stop at some point. Oh, my gosh, this is going to drive Democrats insane. But once again, we see the negotiator at work here, because if, in fact, They are, meaning the Democrats, the Trump opposition, all about just getting to the truth of this, that the president would sit down and speak to the special counsel himself. That's something they really want, right? They've they've been assuming I'm not going to lie to you. I've been assuming that Trump would never do that if he does it. And if there's nothing there. And then Mueller has to wrap it up within 60 or 90 days or whatever the agreement would be. Is that a is is this a bargain that the Democrats, that the Adam Schiff's and the Pelosi's and the Schumer's, you know, will they take this one? New York Times, Washington Post, all these media outlets that are completely invested in the implosion of this presidency, the end of this presidency. Are they going to advocate for or against this? Do they want the truth or do they want an endless They want an endless investigation that just grinds on, and that's the purpose of it. The process is the punishment. I think we all know that they do want the process to be the punishment, but are they willing to make a trade? One one chance to uh, get the president in legal jeopardy? You you notice, notice how Trump is forcing their hand here. Just in the responses to this offer, which has been floated to the Wall Street Journal here, and is the main story on uh, on the Drudge Report as I'm on air. Just th- that he's put it out there will expose some of those who are, oh, no, no, the, the, the Mueller probe, it has to just keep going on and on and on. Oh, no, he'll be done when he's done. Well... Is this about finding out if the president colluded with Russia or is this about a special counsel that just exists to exist and has really just become a machine of petty prosecutions for the gratification and amusement of scorned Hillary voters? 
That's what the Mueller special prosecution or special uh, counsel is all about. This is what makes Democrats feel happy, safe and warm at night, that Mueller's out there uh, bringing felony charges, bankrupting people. I, I, I'm one who likes to remind everyone of this. It's this is not without real pain and cost, even for those who are completely innocent of any wrongdoing, including process crimes. Got to sell your house, got to empty out your bank account. Tens of thousands of dollars to have legal representation for just one of these hearings. Think about if it dragged on for months. So this would be uh, this would be quite a showdown. Trump v. Mueller. And you know why Trump is willing to do it, I think, because he's just. If he does it, we, I, I, I'm still concerned because what happens if Mueller then says that the president has uh, has lied under oath or in this case, it'd be lying to federal investigators. And what if Trump says, no, I didn't. You want to talk about a constitutional crisis, folks. How does that play out? And can the president even be guilty of obstruction? People that I know and respect in this area of constitutional jurisprudence say no. No, he cannot. So what the heck is going on there? Is this just a political exercise? We will have to wait and see. But what a week. Look at what this president has piled onto his plate. Tariffs, that's, which is really about staring down China. Nuclear negotiations, which is about staring down Kim Jong-un in North Korea. And, and he's literally going to stare down Kim Jong-un. I mean, they're going to be sitting across the room from each other. And then staring down the, uh, the Mueller probe. You know, it, it starts to make more sense when we think back to the earliest days. Of this, And, you know, one of the things that I try to do differently than a lot of other people who do radio, which is, I, I do as much work and research as I can to know as much as I can. So when I'm on air, I am never wasting your time. Right. That is a, an absolute goal that I have. But I also know that I, I don't know everything. I learned so much from all of you who listen to this show. And I try to be I try to maintain a degree of humility and knowing that sometimes I'm wrong. Sometimes I don't know things and sometimes I didn't see things coming. And I, I remind myself of that because I think it makes me a better analyst going forward. I remind myself because I want to bring the best that I can to you every single night here on this show. And that means being uh, self-critical when necessary. It means holding myself to account and it means having a memory of what I've said and what I've believed to be true or what I've put forward here on the show. And when I start to think back to the early days of this whole Trump phenomenon, it's not even enough to call it a wave. I mean, it is a phenomenon and it's still Truly hard to believe. Hard to believe is a phrase that people throw around for all kinds of things. But this is still hard to believe. There are days that I wake up and I say, I I, Trump is president? And I don't say it in a negative way. I just say it in a, it's hard to believe. Given what we were told in the Hillary apparatus and a lot of you listening to this show, and I know this because you called and you wrote and you told me very early on, you saw it coming. But I think back to those early days, those early moments of this uh, this Trump phenomenon, and I remind myself, or I remind myself, and think back to how it all seemed so impossible and improbable, and yet he told us all along what was what was happening, what was going to happen, 
there was almost a surreal confidence that Donald Trump had in his run for the presidency. It felt like it could not be real. But then when you would go back and hear what he said and hear what his plans were, you think, well, this is and, and now that he's president, you see, well, this has been the plan all along. This is what he's been saying all along. Right. And I try to remind myself of that because we have a president who said that he would drain the swamp. He said he would build a wall. He said he would be he promised to be a disruptor, to be different. And what was unique about him and separated him from the other. I can't even remember. Now, was it 16, 17 candidates? Was that he wasn't going to do it the way that everybody else did. He wasn't going to listen to the conventional wisdom. He didn't decide that he would just sit down in a room and whoever seemed the smartest at that point in time would be the person who was basically making the decisions as commander in chief. To be disruptive means you have to change what is in repetition. You have to change what is expected. And that is what Trump is doing. He is fulfilling promises by breaking with the traditional way of doing things. Is he right on all of them? I don't know. But do I think that he's earned the right to at least have our patience and good faith with some of these maneuvers? Absolutely. Absolutely. If I've learned anything from trying to analyze and understand the Trump way in politics, to understand the Trump world order that we are in now, it's don't underestimate this guy. And don't think you know better than he does. China. North China! Korea. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Thank you. North Korea. And now Mueller. It's quite a week. Quite a week. I want to get more into the aftermath of that North Korea display uh, coming up here in just a few minutes. And also, oh, wait, it's Friday. So, John, you know what that means. Hit it. Action. This is a chopper! Movie. People keep asking if I'm back, and I haven't really had an answer. But now, yeah, I'm thinking I'm back. Quote, you have the right to be dead. Fridays. Action movie quote Fridays. I know Kung Fu. I know Kung Fu. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. Your thoughts on any of these huge hot topics or action movie quotes or recipes for the best possible hush puppies or jambalaya any of the above call in let me know we'll talk we'll be right back is this a deflection of course it's a deflection willie from stormy well yes of course from (laughs) stormy so tariffs and north korea all to distract from a president that didn't go through the proper channels or use the proper interagency uh, processes once to change the headlines from Stormy Daniels, which was yesterday. That's exactly uh, what it is. I mean, Joe Scarborough should really stick to his favorite pastimes, shouting at maids and limo drivers, you know, not good analysis from this guy at all. He, He really thinks that this is all to distract from Stormy Daniels. Nobody cares. I have yet to meet a person that cares about the Stormy Daniels thing, whether they believe it or not. I just haven't met anybody who is focused on that. When when we're talking about trade with China, North Korea, this is about trying to stop a nuclear war from happening. And no matter how much you think Trump has his flaws or whatever, I, I think that he takes that seriously. Scarborough. Wow. That guy. Amazing. They gave him a show over at MSNBC. I, I think that 
for a you know for a certain kind of Republican, you know they they identify with Scarborough because they're like, yeah, I always want to look like I just came off the beach from Nantucket too, and I don't have to really read or know anything. But if I just sound like the guy who sits at the cool table in high school, then people will believe me. <sighs> There's that. And then, oh, and you had Acosta as well. Oh, we're going to get into some of the haters, everybody. And then I'll talk to you about the real analysis. Michael Oslin will be joining us from the Hoover Institution. I will say this because I actually have a background in national security analysis, as you know. Uh, I know who knows their stuff. And the people that come on this show, particularly in the realm of any anything national security or security related, you know who they are. Guys like Andy McCarthy, uh, Gordon Chang, Michael Oslin. Th- these are people who are at the top. They're people who, when they speak about these issues, they, you know, they share a lot of important insights and give a tremendous, draw on a tremendous depth of information. So Michael will be joining us later to talk about what's really going on here with this North Korean negotiation. I'll give you my take on it as well. But you don't need me to tell you. Don't, but I'm going to tell you anyway because it's fun. Don't uh, let Joe Scarborough, you know. Don't let him shout at you like he shouts at busboys when they don't bring him his shivis fast enough. Uh, you know, and, and don't listen to Jim Acosta either. Clip eight, play it. Clip eight, play it. Uh, we were hearing from senior administration officials uh, that uh, that they were basically cautioning the president against this, that this was not going to be their recommendation. But Trump being Trump, uh, it is not unusual for him to defy his advisors and decide to go with a bold move like this. The potential ramifications of all this, you know, we can't uh, overstate. Obviously, uh, this is not reality television. This is not The Apprentice. When the president of the United States decides to meet with Kim Jong-un about denuclearizing North Korea, uh, this is deadly serious. Yeah, we know. We, we don't need you to tell us there, Chief White House Pundit for CNN, that this is not The Apprentice. But thanks for that. Thanks for that. Oh, gosh, it's really amazing, isn't it? Um, we'll get into some more of the North Korea stuff uh, in just a second here, what it means, why the left is obviously so uh, deeply committed to making it seem like this is a huge mistake. Can you imagine if Trump is, by the way, if, think about if he runs the table this week. And he's he happens to be somewhat even a little bit right on the China tariffs issue and then on North Korea and Mueller. Just an extraordinary evening and, of course, opening the door to the big question. If President Trump can truly solve this problem. Uh, that would be going down as a great president. And there's no way around that. That is the reality here. Somebody pull over the ambulance. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell you can tell they really so we are we are actually in a discussion here folks about a pathway to avoiding a military strike that could result in catastrophic law life right that's what the serious people that's what you and i are thinking about here and how can trump how can this administration achieve that meanwhile in some of the democrat corridors of society the left-wing progressive types uh, their biggest concern is that if Trump pulls this off, then it will be so clear that, one, they've been wrong about him all along, but particularly the issue of national security, he will be, as Aaron Burnett just said there, a great president. And she said it almost like it was an admission of some calamity that would befall America. I mean, it's like so sad. Like, if Trump stops this terrible situation in North Korea, like, What's going to happen to America? Because 
then he'll be a great president. It's like, exactly. Exactly. He'll be a great president. He is, he's, he, I think he's going to be. Yeah, there's, there's some rough edges here and there. There's some stuff. But, you know, maybe part of the problem is that in the past, we have put so much stock on the president. Sounds presidential. Comes across as presidential and all that. That we lost sight of, well, what really affects you and me? And what really affects the world around us? And I think that that's going to be a big difference. We shall see with Trump. But, yeah, that's it, it actually reminds me of what was going on with uh, some Democrats in Congress. And this was I saw this firsthand. Uh, there were some Democrats in Congress during the, the surge, which I know many people listening to this show right now uh, were a part of. And thank you for your service. And, th- and I, I know that the Iraqi people also thank you for saving their country from descending into the seventh circle of hell. Uh but during the surge, there were Democrats who could barely hide their uh, agitation with the fact that the Bush administration plan to surge troops into Iraq to stabilize the country and to fight counterinsurgency the way that it is supposed to be fought, that it was working, which meant less violence against the Iraqi people. There was a drop in violence. That's how you know it's working. And also... Less casualties for U.S. troops because it was working. And I'm talking about when you were evaluating, you know, after a, a period of months. And there were some I, people have yelled at me for saying this. I do not care because I was there. I saw it. I remember. There were some Democrats who I'm not saying they were rooting. They weren't thinking in their heads. And these are members of Congress. Some very well-known ones. I'm not saying they were thinking out loud or saying out loud. Oh, you know, it's a bad thing that we're, we're seeing Uh, less violence in Iraq, but they were thinking, darn it, Trump's whole thing here, this whole gamble, remember, they said he was gambling his presidency on it, it's working. And you sense that same same idea here with some of these uh, media folks and some of these Democrats, as Trump may have, may, being the operative word, have set in motion the biggest uh, diplomatic victory. Well, we'll have to see. Like I said, no, and I keep saying it, don't celebrate early. Very important thing to do. We we don't spike the football until it's time. And then we spike it hard. Uh, But just to give you a little reminder of what it was like here, this is what the media was saying before the announcement. We we pulled together a, a representative montage. We need a montage. I haven't watched Team America in a while. Great film. See, it's, it's so great, I won't even call it a movie. It's a film. Uh, North Korea, North Korea, here we go. Play, play this, uh, clip one. This is what they were saying before the meeting that Trump announced yesterday. This is what they were sounding like when it came to Trump and foreign policy in North Korea. Play one. Tweets like this essentially pour gasoline on that blaze. President Trump is goading Kim Jong-un to uh, test a nuclear missile. I do worry about what his boiling point might be in the face of uh, some of these uh, uh, inflammatory uh, tweets and statements that the president makes. This is just how the snowball effect starts. Wars are very easy to get into. And it gets nasty really quickly. None of this normal, none of this acceptable. None of this, frankly, stable behavior. None of this is normal. Um, that's what they were saying about it. But I should have just read the montage myself, as you could tell there. I, I'm sorry if I talked over some of that, but I, gosh, 
It is, it is uh, pretty amazing. Nicholas Kristoff from the New York Times. You see, if you speak like this, then everyone thinks you're so much smarter than they are. If you think that that doesn't sound like Nicholas Kristoff, go listen to some Nicholas Kristoff. You're like, Buck, you're amazing. You've got the Irish gift of mimicry. Hey, lad. Um, anyway, but this is what they're saying now. So that was beforehand, right? That was with the tweets, and he's goading Kim Jong-un into a war, and oh my gosh, it's going to be terrible. And, and here's what they were saying once the announcement was made. Play clip two. We have our own madman who right. could potentially blow up the world. You're, you're talking about Trump? Yeah, I was thinking of Trump <laughs> when I said that. All of these summits are dangerous. Any president could have sat down with Kim or his father. Why has no sitting American president ever met with a leader from North Korea? Should I take that to mean that this might be a particularly risky or even an unwise move? All of the rhetoric and the insults, the taunts, the nuclear button, mine is bigger than yours, all of that, which has been a real crisis. Even those who really were yearning for talks think that this is conferring legitimacy on Kim Jong-un. Oh, I know. It gives me a headache, too. But here we are dealing with it together. Uh, on the, I think this is important, on the Rachel Maddow point about, and look, I, the, I, like I always do say, I call balls and strikes, credit words. Maddow is smart. Don't underestimate Maddow. She just panders, but she's smart. There are some left-wingers that you'll see on TV, they're just, they're just dumb as dirt, but for whatever, you know, they are on TV because of any number of reasons we could talk about another time. Maddow is smart, but panders and is disingenuous with many of the things she says to that audience because she's looking for ratings. And actually, her ratings, she's beaten CNN by a lot. That tells you something. By a lot. By, like, miles and miles. Uh, but to her point about no previous president has done this, and she's very snarky about it. She's like, oh, I'm just going to be snarky about this. Mm, I wonder why no other president has done this. Well, first of all, there have only been three presidents that have really, before the Trump administration, before President Trump, have really even had to reckon with the possibility of a nuclear North Korea, never mind an actual North Korea, right? So you've got the Bush administration trying to negotiate their way through it with Kim Jong-il. Madeline, I'm sorry, back before that, the Clinton administration trying to negotiate with Kim Jong-il and Madeline, you know, Madeline Albright uh, running point on that. Didn't work out. Big, big failure. Massive fail, as the kids say. Thumbs down, as the old millennials like me would say. Um, and then you had the Bush administration, which as much as I know, we find many things about president Bush to be admirable. And also on North Korea, massive fail. They did not. Now they had some policies that were right. I'm not saying that it's, it was all for naught. They had very smart people thinking about it. Look, the Clinton people had smart people trying to handle this. I mean, I think Madeleine Albright was way overrated for a bunch of reasons, but you know, there were there were there were people that were looking at this and sanctions and these are the right moves. But if the point of that was to stop North Korea from advancing its missile and nuclear programs, that is they they were failures. OK, so Clinton failed. Bush one failed. Obama failed. I'm sorry. Bush two failed. Obama failed. So you look back at this now and you say to yourself, OK, you've only had a few presidents that have even had to think about a nuclear North Korea. So, I mean, to compare it to like, well, look at Jimmy Carter, in North Korea, that's irrelevant, okay? because the, the reason that we can't ignore this is the possibility of the complete immolation of a city. 
that's not something you can just write off. That's not something you can say, you know what, we're just going to figure out this problem some other time. No. And that's why there's been an urgency to this. And we are working on a timetable. We are working on a clock here. And so we keep being told by both sides of the political aisle that they're getting North Korea is getting closer and closer to definitively. I don't even know if we know what they have, quite honestly. Right. I mean, you know, there's that. Um, But to definitively have an ICBM that is nuclear tipped, that is nuclear capable, that could hit anywhere in the continental United States. And then they'll try to get more of those missiles a missile threat that could defeat our countermeasures. And then you're relying entirely on deterrence, and we're hoping that North Korea is not crazy enough to try something. We all know that we're running out of room, we're running out of uh, road here to work with. And the Trump administration is looking at this and saying, well, what's been tried in the past, or this is, and this brings us back to the Maddow point there, the snarky, well, why did every president not do this? Because every president has failed thus far to actually stop the program, never mind to to eradicate the nuclear program in North Korea. I just mean to 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 stop it for a considerable period of time and to stop the missile program and to get compliance, meaningful compliance with Korea. What they've done in the past is pretend to negotiate and then just, you know, psych. I mean, it is Lucy with the football, my friends. It is just a total. All the whole thing, a total scam. Oh, yeah, all of our agreements, we we renounced those. Sorry. Thanks for all the food aid, though, suckers. That's what they're saying to the international community. So um, that's what I think we have to keep in mind if we're going to be judging the Trump administration's ability here or Trump administration's decision-making to go forward with this. Uh, It's different, but you need something different. This brings you back to the very beginning of the show, disruptive, a change from the norm outside of what is expected. Isn't that what Trump promised? And isn't that the reason that he is president right now? If we wanted somebody who was going to do what the panels of analysts at, you know, ABC and CNN and et cetera, et cetera, wanted him to do, wouldn't it? Would, I mean, and, and assuming it's a Republican, you know, we, we could have had Kasich. Yikes. But there you go. You, you, we could have done that, but we didn't, did we? We've got a president that takes a different approach, that doesn't care what the consensus opinion is. He cares what he thinks the right move is on these issues, and he's going with it. And I think that we should see what happens. You let him play it out. I mean, he's going to. Uh, 844-900-2800. 2584-900-BUCK. We will hit a quick break and we'll be right back. Cavalier threats to start a war are dangerous and short-sighted. I am worried about some of the recent actions from the new administration that seem to raise tensions. Our allies are now expressing concerns about America's credibility and reliability. And by the way, picking fights with Kim Jong-un just puts a smile on his face. Well, actually, I, we do not need to hear from Hillary. I want to note, what was Hillary's, to, to take us back to a, another time that we'll all remember quite well, Hillary was Secretary of State for, what, four years, something like that? What was her big accomplishment as America's chief diplomat in those four years, other than flying all over the world, establishing 
foreign contacts so that there'd be even more people able to buy influence that she was peddling via the Clinton Foundation. What what did she really what did she accomplish? In fact, I recall when asked some of her State Department spokespersons drew a blank. And I thought it was very unfair that those spokespersons were criticized at the time for drawing a blank on Hillary's accomplishments. It wasn't their fault Hillary had no accomplishments, right? There's nothing you can do about that. That was just the truth. In fact, the silence was the ultimate truth when it came to Hillary's ability to get deals done as America's chief diplomat under the Obama administration. And don't even get me started on Benghazi. We'll just talk about that for the rest of the show. Uh, And then there are others from the Obama administration that have come out of the woodwork to uh, criticize this, including uh, MSNBC's Evelyn Farkas. Play clip three. And if what they really will be satisfied with is respect and normalization, great, we can give that to them. But we have to maintain the pressure because remember what got them to the table, the sanctions and unfortunately probably some of the bluster coming out of the White House. Whoa, look at that. Look at that. She's admitting it, folks. She's like, ah, it's just like so upsetting. But like Trump was maybe, maybe Trump's like an evil genius. I know. I know it makes them sad. It makes them very sad. But I, I give her credit, Ms. Farkas, for admitting that, in fact, Trump's approach here, while breaking with the foreign policy orthodoxy, was, in fact, perhaps just, just a little, just a little bit, a little bit, a little bit of the fuel to get this whole thing going. You know, when you have a regime that is, in fact, in a sense, a necrocracy, it is ruled by the dead because Kim Jong-un's grandfather, Kim Il-sung, is still considered the the father of the state and and is still really the North Korean commander in chief, in a sense. I mean, not not really, but in in North Korean uh, propaganda, Um, he's still officially the the supreme leader and when you're dealing with that and you have someone who is the leader of the free world who is finally willing to push back on that you know everyone right now is assuming that kim jong-un is just trying to play us but what if there was a realization that they couldn't keep the propaganda going if they kept this if if it was you know kim jong-un standing up to the world standing up to america all the time and doing so fearlessly. And, you know, if you've ever seen North Korean propaganda, it's its own whole area of study. Uh, but what if it made the regime look weak that somebody was willing to say things like Kim Jong-un is a little punk and we're not going to stand for this anymore? That's a form of pressure in and of itself, right? It had been the traditional conventional wisdom that you can't. You can't talk tough to Kim Jong-un. You have to say things like the the international community will come together and in bonds of in bonds of trust and legality to slowly eliminate the rogue behavior. No, no, no. Trump is just like, no, we're not standing for anymore. This guy's a punk and a coward and he's going to get it if he doesn't watch it. And sure enough, now they want to talk. So maybe it's maybe it is all a head fake, but uh I got to say, you start adding up the the data points here, and it looks like maybe, uh, as Ms. Fark has just admitted, it was some of Trump's bluster. I know. Good stuff.
Welcome to Hour 2 of the Buck Sexton Show. Thank you so much for being here. I've got uh, news to talk to you about. As I said, we are uh, doing a bit of a deep dive into the talks that Trump is going to have with Kim Jong-un of North Korea later this uh, hour, uh, coming up actually just at the bottom of the hour, so right around, uh, well, in, in just a little bit. Uh, we'll have Michael Oslin joining us of the Hoover Institution. He, he is an excellent uh, security policy analyst on uh, all East Asia issues. You'll want to hear what he has to say about where this is all going and what it means. And and then the third hour today, we'll get into just some stuff uh, that comes to mind. I'll talk to you about my Savannah trip. I'm down here in Savannah, Georgia, broadcasting live from our iHeart affiliate. Uh, uh, so uh, we are uh, going to be talking about that. But first, I've got to give you just uh, some Updates here on a, on a breaking news story that a veteran's home in California is on lockdown. There are reports of shots fired and an armed man uh, taking three hostages, according to Fox News, here during an active shoot, uh, shooter situation at a California veteran's home in, in Yountville, uh, California, at the Yountville veteran's home. I do not have... Any additional information right now, then SWAT is on the scene and they are uh, trying to deal with what they what is a, a hostage situation right now. Uh, if we get any more breaking news on this one, I'll bring you up to speed. I don't have any word on casualties. Obviously, active shooter situation puts everyone on edge. It always puts everyone on edge. And that this involves one of the um, larger veterans homes. It's got veterans uh, who more than a thousand veterans uh, stretching back all the way to World War II. So our, uh, our thoughts and prayers are with all those at the home, all the families of those at the home. And as soon as we have more on that, uh, we will bring it to you. I have an update on another uh, active or uh, pr- previous shooter situation. Pardon me. Uh, what happened in Florida at the Stoneman Douglas School? I have said to you, and I I stand behind this, and I think it's been proven increasingly correct with time, that whenever we thought it couldn't get any worse from the perspective of what law enforcement involved in this scenario, right? I don't like to just say law enforcement generally because we've got hundreds of thousands of law enforcement officers across the country doing a phenomenal job, putting their lives at risk every day and making this an incredibly safe and uh, prosperous country in the process, right? But law enforcement involved in this shooting was, in some cases, absolutely uh, appalling in their behavior. And in other cases, which I'll talk to you about as well, very admirable. So, you know, you get both sides of it with the Stoneman Douglas uh, shooting law enforcement response. But I was very critical of officer or deputy. He's a deputy in the Broward County Sheriff's Department, Deputy Peterson's actions. And some of you, as you are always, you know, I am always open to uh, good faith arguments, challenges, critiques, you know, calling. If you think I'm, you think I'm off, I want to hear from folks out there who think that I'm off. I think that I'm getting something wrong. Always. Doesn't mean I'm going to agree with you. Doesn't mean I'm going to let it slide on air, but I want to hear from you. And some of uh, some of those of you listened saw, thought that I was being too hard on Peterson. Uh, now that we have more information, I'm, I wasn't being hard enough on Peterson. A couple of very important points here about the Stoneman Douglas shooting and the law enforcement response to it. Uh, one is that it is, in fact, uh, 
and was before this Broward County Sheriff's Department policy that during an active shooter situation, you go and confront the threat. That is what armed law enforcement is supposed to do. That is the policy. So people who were uh, initially saying, oh, no, the policy is a perimeter. It's not their fault. They're not trained for it. That is false. Broward County Sheriff's deputies are trained and expected to directly confront the threat. Obviously, that's what should have been done. And that was what they were supposed to do. Now, once we heard about deputies on the scene who didn't go in, who were waiting outside the school, we knew there would be some maneuvering on their part to make it seem like it wasn't quite as bad as it was from the perspective, again, of their actions. And we even heard Peterson, I think through his lawyer, Deputy Peterson, say, well, I wasn't sure if a shooting was happening inside or outside the building, which you can go back and listen. When that was the, I said, I don't believe that. No way. I, 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 that's not even an issue of training, right? Every single one of you listening is like, uh, I would know if the shooting was inside or outside the building. It's not that hard to figure out. Uh, I said that at the time. And now we have the audio tapes. Now, th- this stuff is, uh, is disturbing. We're not going to play a lot of the news networks and shows and everything have just been running the, you know, terrified calls being made. That's not where we are past far enough past the event and enough other people are doing that right now that I don't find that to be necessary at this stage. It's out there. It's on the Internet. You can hear that. But this the response and analyzing law enforcement response so that if this comes up again, uh, everyone is very clear about what needs to be done and also what the expectations of the. Of, of the community, of all of us, of civilians, would be in this kind of situation, it is important to look at the response. So that's why I'm going to play, coming up here in just a second, a short clip from Officer Peterson's 911 call. This is in the initial moments. And Miami Herald has done some very good reporting on this. This is in the initial moments. They've got a timeline now, uh, and the 911 calls have been released. But this part of it is gives us some very important information. Play clip 11. Do not approach the 12 or 1300 buildings. Stay at least 500 feet away at this point. Stay away from 12 and 1300 buildings. Stay away? Stay 500 feet away from the building? My friends, come on. I know you know this, but wow. 500 feet away. There is an active shooter inside the building. And he obviously knows that that's what's going on. And he's saying stay 500 feet away, which is against policy and against their training. Uh, This is a disgrace. It's a good thing that he resigned because otherwise he would have had to be uh, dragged into a a, a public. uh, Well, it actually doesn't matter. I was going to say it could be dragged into. Um more of a of a hearing than he already was but it it doesn't matter we all know it's being tried in the public in a sense now we're all seeing this and it's really distressing though um it was as bad as we thought initially he waited outside shootings going on inside kids are getting killed they have no defense they're defenseless there's an active shooter he's on the scene he is trained he is law enforcement he is sworn to uphold law and to protect the innocent and didn't do a darn thing We know that other law enforcement showed up at the scene and was 
appalled at what the Broward County Sheriff's Department was doing. They're like, well, what are you guys doing? You know, they knew. And then there's another part of this, and, and I'm almost mixed in my feelings of this one because on the one hand, it, it is a reminder of what law enforcement in this country is really all about. So that's good. On the other hand, I'm annoyed that they're getting in trouble. But you had two SWAT team members, detectives Jeffrey Gilbert and Carl Schlosser, who rushed to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School the moment they heard there was an active shooter there. They just went. They were just, you know, wheels up, inbound, hot. And they got suspended. I know you're thinking, what? Two SWAT members running running toward the, toward the gunfire. Exactly what we expect and know our law enforcement across the country does. And these guys have additional training and tactical skills to make them even more effective at confronting that threat. But they are emblematic of what American law enforcement is all about. People are in danger. There is a criminal who is harming innocents. We're on it. So in that sense, it's okay. Andrew, that, that's what we're, that's actually, forget about this Peterson, Deputy Peterson for a second. American law enforcement every day, time and again across the country is represented by detectives Gilbert and Schlosser. But they got suspended because they disobeyed orders? I mean, you know, we, we can't let that one slide. They're, they're disobeying orders to go to the, the scene. Miramar Police Department spokeswoman Tanya Ruiz said it, quote, created a danger for the officers who were responding. Well, now that we know what those, some of those responding officers were doing, uh, I'm not really sure how we're supposed to take this one, folks. It created a danger for the officers who were saying, stay 500 feet away from the building where there's an active slaughter going on, where, where students are bleeding out. Remember, every second counts. These are trauma wounds. They are dying. Students are dying from blood loss. 500 feet from the building, as you all know, that's pretty far. That's not take up, you know, take cover and see if we can, I don't know, I don't know if officers would, these officers probably wouldn't get into a stack and kick in the door, but try to tactically maneuver their way in the building. No, no, that's, that's like, whoa, you know, we got to, let's, let's go way, way out there. Make sure we're nowhere in harm's way, 500 feet from the building. That's insane. And you got these other officers from uh, Miramar Police Department who were like, there are people in danger. This is what we do. This is how we roll. So God bless them. I mean, it's, it's good to hear. And, and the, that other, uh, the, the other police department that was on the scene that was disgusted by the actions of this, you know, I, we're, we're all very thankful to them for representing what actual law enforcement in this country is all about and how they do their jobs day in and day out. But getting back to the failures here, you know, with the FBI, the tip line, the FBI has said, yeah, we failed. Yeah, we know. They're going to revamp the way they approach uh, the tip line in some capacity. Who knows what that really means? But they they drop the ball many times. Um, I I have a, you know, I'm less clear on what local law enforcement with with the passage of a little more time now and thinking about it, you know, Broward County Sheriff's Department. I, I guess they could have pressed charges for the threats. They could have tried that, maybe. But the actual response that day from what we see and what we now know. And if you listen to those audio tapes, you'll hear it. They had cops on the scene who knew exactly what was going on. They just didn't want to go in. They just didn't want to get shot at. Deputy Peterson just didn't want to get shot at. That's it. That's what you take away from this this audio. And 
I know a lot of uh, law enforcement uh, law enforcement folks are hearing this, and they're just saying, you know, that's just it's it's such a bad uh, it's such a bad situation for uh, all of the other folks that were on the scene who wanted to go in there and wanted to be the ones that put themselves in harm's way to take those risks to protect people who had no chance of protecting themselves. I know know this is uh, an issue people get very passionate about. I appreciate that. I understand it. I feel the same way. Um, But looking at the response, I think it's important we know what happened there. I also want to know when we can get, and this is a a diversion, a digression from Stoneman Douglas, but I'd like to know when we can get actual information on what happened in Las Vegas, speaking about active shooter situations. The more I look into that, it, it just keeps getting weirder what's going on. I, I get no real information about so much that, that happened. The 911 tapes from this have been released. I, I might have missed them, but I feel like there's still a whole lot of information that we have access to about Las Vegas. We could have access to that we haven't seen yet. What's going on there? Just that's something to think about. It's something we'll tackle another time. I'm going to roll into a, a quick break here, team. We'll be back in just a moment. You've appointed someone outside DOJ. Are they actually a special counsel? And I think that matters because that individual needs to have resources, needs to be able to go to the grand jury in Washington where most of this stuff took place. So you can subpoena evidence, uh, documents, bring witnesses in. If you need search warrants, you can do that. Remember, when Hillary was investigated, they didn't do any of those basic administrative steps. It was basically a pro forma investigation, a real investigation here. If, If this guy... Uh, goes after this the way Mueller is scorching the earth, you'll have a flurry of indictments based on what we already know. As Representative uh, Ron DeSantis, I I think he's totally correct here. If you applied Mueller tactics to a Hillary investigation, if you set up a a second special counsel, which in effect, I would note, my friends, would really be a special counsel to look at the special counsel, there would be all kinds of people that would be in jeopardy and i think in legal jeopardy i think it also would be fair play because the way this is going right now it just continues to drain resources and just ruin the lives of people caught up in the investigation and you'll notice something about them they're all republicans all tied to trump this is partisan warfare that's what the Mueller probe has turned into that is what it is this is the deep state's revenge so to speak and I think we're all sick of it. And if the shoe were on the other foot all of a sudden, or I guess we had shoes on both feet here if there were two special counsels, you know what I'm saying. If that happened, then maybe in the future, uh, Democrats would be a little bit less uh, sore losers and wouldn't go for the legal option to remedy their political disappointments. Wouldn't just try to weaponize the law and the DOJ in order to get for themselves what they could not get through a free, fair, and open election. Speaking of free, fair, and open election, by the way, Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin had something very uh, interesting to say. This is through a trend. It always it sounds not nearly as as tough guy, you know, as you would expect, right? Putin shirtless, carrying a rifle, three bears slung over his shoulder that he's taken out himself, right? The whole thing. Uh, whatever he does it through a translator, it's like, yes, I will make sure that Vladimir is the biggest, strongest man. It's never really as scary as it should be, but this is Putin through a translator. 14. 
You mentioned a number of names, some individuals, and you're telling me that they're Russians. So what? Maybe being Russian, they're actually working for some kind of American company. Perhaps one of them used to work for one of the candidates. I have no idea. These are not my problems. <laughs> like, I have no idea. These are not my problems. Oh, Vlad. Ah, uh, you funny man, you. So I do think that the uh, a second special counsel would be uh, very useful, and I think that we should get it going. I think that Representative DeSantis makes the critical point there that we should see how the Democrats like it when all of a sudden everything just turns into an examination where the facts are not what's really, uh, or, or rather crimes are not what they're really concerned with. Finding crimes that they can pin on political enemies is what they're trying to do, right? They're trying to create the conditions for violations of statute that then allow for retaliation. What's just political retaliation? Uh, on the Vladimir side of things, though, there are the some kind of American company. These are these are not my problems. Uh, I think he's just trolling. Look, he's fire. If you were him, what would you say at this point? You know, maybe it would have been easier with Hillary. You know, I don't know. What would you say? Maybe I should never have meddled. Uh, I think that at this point in time, we're starting to see that the Democrat narrative is fraying at the seams. They're getting desperate. That's why Trump's willing to stare down Mueller in the first place. That's why we have a situation where finally, finally, um, there may be a breakthrough uh on North Korea, on the Mueller probe, and with uh, China's unfair trade practices. Um, we will see. We will see. I, I have my... Uh, I have some predictions in mind here. Oh, wait. We, oh, I just realized. Sorry. I thought we were going to break there for a second, and we didn't, because I'm in Savannah, so my timing's a little off there. So if it sounded like I was dozing off, it's just because I was like, am I to stop speaking? And I need... No, I'm not going to stop speaking. We've got our friend Michael Oslin joining us from the Hoover Institute, and uh, he's going to talk about North Korea a bit more. And then third hour, Obama on Netflix? Oh, we'll talk about that and a whole lot of other stuff. I think it is a diplomatic shock and awe, and I think that it's because North Korea, number one, is very close to achieving its uh, objective of being able to deliver uh, nuclear warheads to targets in the United States via b ballistic missile, uh, and they want to buy time uh, to get across that finish line. I don't think Kim Jong-un uh, except, uh, expected that the president was going to take up his offer. I think he believed he'd get the usual uh, response uh, of six months of diplomatic preparation, nine months of talks, that it would go on forever. So that's uh, former U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations John Bolton saying that we may have knocked Kim off balance here, perhaps, with Trump saying he would accept it so quickly. A lot of different analysis coming in on this one and Obviously, a, a, a momentous event here, or, or, or is it? Now, that's really where this all comes down to. To help us work through some of this, we've got Michael Oslin on the phone. He is the uh, inaugural Williams Griffiths Fellow in Contemporary Asia Studies at the Hoover Institution. He specializes in global risk analysis, U.S. security and foreign policy strategy, particularly in Asia. Michael, great to have you. Thanks for having me, Buck. Are, what, what do you make of this? I mean, just give me at first your, your 30,000 foot view of what we found out about U.S., North Korea, South Korea diplomatic relations in the last 48 hours or so. 
Well, honestly, I think it, this is actually what both leaders wanted. Uh, I think from the beginning, the Trump administration, I don't think they actually wanted to go to war. I think what they felt rightly is that eight years of inaction by the Obama administration and, and failed policies on the part of previous U.S. administrations had left the U.S. with almost no leverage. So they ramped up the pressure. They increased sanctions. They talked about war and fire and fury and bloody nose. And that gave Kim pause because he had never heard a U.S. president consistently talk like that. On the so, other hand, go ahead. Kim Jong-un pressed ahead with his nuclear and missile programs, ramped it up to the level where the United States seriously felt it either had to talk or it had to go to war. And so he got what he wanted, which is a sit down with the president of the U.S. and the possibility of getting much bigger prizes. Now, there's a lot of analysis. We've been playing some of it here on the show from different people saying this is, you know, clearly uh, just a ploy. Uh, how could Trump fall? For this, of course, there are other people that take a more pro-Trump view, saying this is a breakthrough that Obama didn't manage in in eight years. Uh, first, let me just ask you about that. Uh, how how do you assess the change here from what we had seen for the last uh, eight years or so in terms of the Obama approach to North Korea? Is it fair to say that this is something new and different, or is this just more of the same? Well, I, I think that it has been something like we might call it an Obama plus strategy. What you know, the Obama administration adopted this policy of strategic patience, which was basically a free pass for the Kim regime for eight years to build up its weapons systems. Uh, now they, they did do some sanctions. They did talk about working closer with, with allies. They did do shows of force occasionally. But that's what all U.S. administrations have done. I think with Trump, it was that questioning of the madman theory. Would he really go to war? Does he, is he really so unpredictable that it might be a bolt out of the blue? Now, you combine that with much stronger sanctions and absolutely much stronger rhetoric. And in a sense, it, it is something new. But I think the number one thing to, to uh, remember when dealing with the North Koreans is never ever underestimate them. It may well be that Kim Jong-un got nervous, and it may well be that he thought, you know, I better try to strike a deal before all the time runs out. But this is a regime, let's not forget, that has survived for 60 years because of how wily it is and how smart it is in negotiating its own survival. Uh, they don't do anything out of panic. At least we've never really seen it. Uh, they dance right up to the line where you can't turn back, and yet they always drag themselves back from the abyss. And I don't think there's any reason to believe that they've changed. So the Trump administration may well feel that it is its pressure that has brought Kim to this point. But that doesn't mean that Kim is necessarily on the defensive. They may come up with some sort of massive Reykjavik-like plan that will seem too good to pass down or, or, or pass on uh, that would include very quickly getting United States troops out of the peninsula, normalizing relations with North Korea, recognizing them as a nuclear power and the like. Uh, if Trump takes it, it's a worry because this needs to be negotiated very, very slowly uh, with everybody understanding what the implications are. And of course, if Kim comes in with this grand bargain and Trump turns it down, then Kim gets to turn to the world and say, look, I was the one who wanted peace. I offered this grand deal. The Americans turned it down. I'll never give up my nuclear weapons. We're speaking to Michael Oslin, who is a security expert from the Hoover Institution. Uh, Michael, people have been also putting out a lot of unsolicited advice to the president in terms of what needs to happen between now and this proposed meeting, which is supposed to happen in May, right? That's what we've been told. 
What, what, what do you make of that? Do there have to be preconditions, uh, specific preconditions for this meeting that we could already assess? Or do you have to kind of see what the North Koreans come to us with first? I mean, how does this dance between now and the day of, of actual talks have to go? Yeah, well, I think that horse has left the barn. Trump already agreed. And I don't think you can walk back and say, by the way, here are our preconditions. Kim will walk away and say, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Uh, so I think that the president, you know, publicly sending the South Korean uh, national security advisor out to say, hey, Kim offered, Trump accepted, and then the White House confirms it, means you've already given up that question of, of, uh, of preconditions. Your question, I think, is is very right on the idea of speed here. This is happening very, very quickly. We're talking about this potentially taking place over the next two months, two to three months uh, at most, is is the timeline they've given us. You know, usually, these things take years to to put into place, and you have all sorts of negotiations at lower levels working their way up the chain, so that when it gets to the presidential level, and it gets to the level of of a summit, everything's been worked out. The danger here is that nothing's been worked out, and there's certainly no time to work anything out in a methodical, sort of measured way. Either it's going to be a dramatic Hail Mary to solve the Korean crisis, or they're going to go into the meeting without, or both sides will go into the meeting without any real idea of, of or where they're going to go with this. Uh, again, I think the North Koreans definitely know. They're going to press hard on getting rid of sanctions. They're going to press hard uh, for some type of recognition, for getting troops off the peninsula, all in exchange for probably largely unverifiable uh, freeze on their nuclear program, or at least we can never be fully sure that they will have lived up to their words. If this comes to naught, if let's say there's this meeting and it's a propaganda victory for the North Koreans, we don't get anything that's acceptable from our end, really from the rest of the world's end on this one. Are we on a march toward military conflict with North Korea if we can't figure this out this time around? Well, I, I, I don't think you're ever on a, a march necessarily because you can't figure it out. Look, we've been dealing with North Korea for 25 years now on the nuclear issue. Now, we failed. You know, we failed to stop them from getting a nuclear weapon, so we're in a new era. But I, I am of the school that thinks that deterrence is not yet completely uh, useless. Uh, you know, H.R. McMaster, national security advisor, has indicated his belief otherwise. I think that the regime in North Korea certainly understands that it cannot win a contest with the United States. And since survival is its number one uh, goal, it's, it's, its overriding goal, then it, it's always going to be careful in terms of pushing us into some type uh, of military conflict. Um, but I don't think also that walking away from the table from this meeting without having solved anything uh, means that you're back to square one. This is obviously a breakthrough of some kind. We've seen it before. The North Koreans have proposed denuclearization talks before. The logic of diplomacy is that we have to follow up, but you have to be extraordinarily successful. But you're right, Buck. What this does give and what can never be taken away is that this gives Kim Jong-un a massive propaganda coup. When you sit down at the table as a equal to the North Korean president, which is, you know, what the diplom diplomatic protocol will be, uh, that legitimizes him in a way no U.S. president has been willing to do. And if the Trump administration is making a strategic change because they think this will actually get more cooperation towards the end goal of denuclearization, that, that's fine. But they've done it with such rapidity 
And so precipitously that you haven't prepared allies, you haven't prepared the U.S. public, we're not sure if all the different parts of the U.S. government have weighed in with with what they think this means. So there are a lot of risks here, uh, but obviously it's a gamble that the president feels he's well-placed to take. Before we uh, head off uh, here into, into the weekends, Michael, I wanted to ask for your rosiest but realistic uh, scenario here, meaning if things go as well as they could realistically be expected to with this meeting based on North Korea's uh, red lines and and what it would what it would need for there to be some kind of a, a bargain here, what would that what, what would that look like? What would a huge Trump I'd like to establish now kind of where the goalposts are for what is, wow, Trump just managed to pull off the greatest diplomatic national security uh, victory since the end of the Cold War. Yeah, I think he has to avoid the Reykjavik temptation to try to solve this in one fell swoop, as Reagan did with Gorbachev uh, in Reykjavik in 1986. I think the most realistic and best case scenario is that they come away uh, with an agreement to now can begin very serious high-level talks uh, about denuclearization, where the U.S. has given up nothing, has not agreed uh, to remove any of the sanctions. And quite frankly, all you can do is play that out. Uh, I think we know that the North Koreans undercut almost any deal they make. Uh, we know that they play for time. Again, I think the logic of diplomacy is that you have to see where it goes. But given that it's at this level, any talks from now on will have Kim Jong-un's stamp on them, so to speak. So if they come away saying, we are now going to begin a serious round of negotiations and the White House reserves the ability to uh, to put on more sanctions or, or do other things, you know, I think it's better than them walking away uh, saying, well, we failed and now let's prepare for war, or that they rush into a deal where no one is really sure of what the implications are. Michael Oslin is the author of The End of the Asian Century, which is available on Amazon for you folks who want to do some deep dive reading on this on your own time. And he's also a fellow at the Hoover Institution. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Anytime, Buck. Thank you. Tim, we are going to roll into a quick break here. We are going to come back and get into a bit of a freestyle because it's the third hour of the show soon. So stay right there and we'll be back. Well, there's a little bit of political tumult out in California. This is of the fun kind, though, because you got Democrat on Democrat issues. The latest is that our, our, our main man, our, our home slice, Bernie Sanders... What do you mean? What are you talking about? It's a Republican show. Don't talk about me. What about it? He refuses. He refuses to endorse uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein in advance of her primary in California. Ooh, I see. I think this is a this is a harbinger of things to come, my friends. Here's why. Harbinger. Why are you using those words? What is that supposed to mean? Harbinger. So Bernie is the left-wing darling of the elected portion of the Democrat Party, right? Bernie is where the Democrats were emotionally in the last presidential election. I had so much fun at CNN whenever they would occasionally allow me to be part of a post-Democrat debate panel, just looking at all the all the Hillary bots, all little Hillary supporters, and say, we all know that Bernie's the authentic one, right? Authentic, baby. 100% real. The real deal. 
We all know that Bernie's what the Democrats would like to vote for, but instead they're going to vote for, Hello, Hillary! She's the best! She's amazing! And they went with Hillary, and now we all know what happened! And they wish they could have voted for Bernie. But the Democrat left is going to reassert itself, and let me tell you, there is nothing better that I can think of for the Republicans that the Democrats could do to themselves than actually let the American people what Democrats really want and think and believe. You see, Feinstein is the... And now keep on, this isn't... When I say old school, I think Feinstein and Sanders are, are pretty close in age, right? They're both, they're both up there. But Feinstein is the... Uh, the more centrist model of left-wing Democrat, at least. She's viewed as being too conservative because she has voted, this is according to the progressives in the Democrat Party, because she has voted with Trump, this is what they say, 30% of the time. So she goes against Trump 70% of the time. Not That's not progressive enough. Keep in mind, these are things like, I, you know, we're talking about every vote that she has, right? So, you know, with the defense budget, the... You know, you look at all these different votes that senators will, will take at any at any point in time. And sure enough, Dianne Feinstein is with Trump three out of ten times, and that is too much for the Democrats. So there's going to be a little bit of a progressive feeding frenzy uh, last year. I'm sorry, this year. Well, maybe there was one last year, too, but there's a, pro- a progressive feeding frenzy that's coming up. Uh, and I think this would be absolutely... Fantastic for the Republicans in the midterms, because if if the American people see that it is, in fact, the left wing uh, social justice warriors that have become the ideological, the the ideological vanguard of the Democrat Party, the American people are going to run from that. So I want more. I want Bernie like Feinstein. She's practically right wing. It's crazy. You know, I think that's way better because what you get with the Hillary Feinstein wing of the Democrat Party is is really this much of the same left wing stuff you'd get anyway. But they pretend to be more sort of centrist and down the middle and technocratic and reasonable. Right. Feinstein. And look, I think on some things, Feinstein is more reasonable than, say, a Bernie Sanders. I'm not I'm not going to pretend like there's no differences, but I'm much more concerned about. A, a Feinstein surge in the midterm, or, or people, I shouldn't say Feinstein surge, but Democrats, especially in purple states that are, you know, they've got this guy in Pennsylvania, he's a former Marine, he's telegenic, you know, he, you know th- these are formidable candidates, folks, right? These are people that, they're Democrats, and they, you know, people could say, you know what, I'm going to give this guy or this gal a shot. They look like they know what's up. You're going to have Bernie Sanders-style candidates in a lot of these races, or Bernie Sanders-approved, it's going to be a wipeout for the Democrats, relatively speaking. I mean, it's probably going to be pretty close no matter what happens. But I like to get excited about the way, my political prognostications that everyone's going to forget. Not me. I'll remember. I'm going to write it down. I'm going to record it. Okay, Bernie. You do that. Hour three coming up. Stay with me, team. Welcome to Hour 3. Our Freestyle Friday is continuing here. We're going to be talking to you about uh, violent video games, then share some thoughts on my time down here in Savannah and, and visiting with some of the uh, 
fantastic sponsors of the Buck Sexton Show, as well as uh, getting to get a tour and hang out with some of the folks here at uh, WTKC, uh, which is the station or our iHeart affiliate down here in Savannah. So uh, I'll get into some of that, and then we'll finish up, as is our custom team, with Roll Call. But this is something that came across my radar, and it it fits into the category of just, when is it going to stop? You know, I am a Netflix and nap kind of guy on the weekends. Now, Netflix and nap is Netflix and then taking naps. Apparently, Netflix and chill means something else, which I have found out. So there's that. But I'm a Netflix and nap kind of guy on the weekends. I love watching things on demand. And, yeah, I I read as much as I can on the weekends, too, because that's when I do a lot of my additional research for this show, for podcasts. And I just also love reading. Um, I love reading, and I'm not afraid to say it. Uh, But, you know, I'm somebody who enjoys some good Netflix shows. I just burned through Ozark with Miss Molly. We loved it. I I really liked it. I thought it was very well done. And uh, if if somebody likes the show um, uh, Breaking Bad, I think Ozark is a very good, not as good as Breaking Bad, but it's a very good, similar genre. But, you know, Netflix is doing great stuff. They, They don't get... You know, some of their shows are strikeouts, but they they definitely get on base a lot, and they've even hit some some home runs. And then I see this, and it just makes me frustrated, folks. As somebody who works in the media, works very, very hard, and tries to put out the best content possible all the time, it, it, it could be that we lived in a world where content, the, the best content would win out. But instead, what you have a lot of the time is that the platforms are dominated by by political interests, meaning that there are people who have their own versions of what they think politics should be. They make the decisions about what shows are on, what shows aren't. And that's how you get abominations like Bill Nye, the science guy on Netflix, which was the worst, least funny, least informative, steamy pile of yak crap I have ever watched on any Netflix, Amazon, any of these new platforms ever, period. It was unwatchable. I mean, it was, the, you know, oof, gosh. I, I, I have, like, have flashbacks to trying to watch this thing. It was terrible. Now I find out that Netflix is thinking about having Barack Obama appear as the, this is from CNN, as the on-camera uh, moderator of a new series or... He might stay off camera as a producer of a show about uplifting American stories, or maybe he'll do both. So Obama is about to become quite a force on Netflix. Now, a couple of things on this one. It's going to be amazing. I'm going to a great show. I'm going to tell stories about my background and how I saved the world. And I'm the smartest president ever. So there's that. Uh... But Obama, look, I, I, I give credit where it's due. He knows much better to control the culture. He will be much more influential as somebody who is on Netflix or pushing shows on Netflix. Uh, you know, th- that's the way that the, the upcoming generation starts going hard left. That's the way that they mold minds into being progressive social justice warriors, not by having another, you know, Obama doesn't need to appear on CNN or MSNBC, blah, 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 right? 
mean, he's done plenty of that already. He had eight years of nonstop coverage, and they're like, oh, Obama's amazing. He's the most brilliant man in the universe. I know. It's hard for me to talk to you people because you're not as smart as I am. And I'm really smart, and I'm amazing, and perfect, and basically a demigod. So you may worship at my feet. Uh, so he already had that, right? So now he's maybe going to be doing the Netflix thing. Uh, but I, I take this very seriously, folks, because he, the influence that he could have in the culture is much more than the influence that he would have as just another former president, a talking head. You know, uh, you, you see how this, this happens now. The Clintons understood that, especially given their look, the Clinton Foundation, in a sense, was brilliant. I mean, it, it polluted charitable giving, and it's disgusting to use charity as a vehicle for self-advancement and all kinds of kickbacks and favors. Don't even get me started on Uranium One. But no, on all the other things as well, the open stuff that was going on, not even just the stuff we haven't yet found out the full details of. I think that's a total disgrace. But it was brilliant from the perspective of the Clintons. You basically get to have a tax-free marketing campaign for the Clinton brand. Right? And, 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 and you get to burnish your brand by being involved with a charity, running a charity. So it was brilliant stuff. It's just the Clintons are grasping and disgusting, and so they, they made it too obvious what was really going on. And that's also why the Clinton Global Initiative shut down after Hillary didn't win. All of a sudden, people don't care about charity. They were giving so much money. But then Hillary's no longer going to be the president. And they don't care about charity. The donations dry up. They have to shut things down. Oh, almost like the whole friggin' thing was corrupt. But the Clintons had their charity. Obama, I've been, I've been saying this for a while, actually, is going to be a major force in the media. You know, he, he, they're, they're going to make Obama a, a crossover of political and cultural importance. And the left will do everything they can to elevate him. And the left is very powerful. You look at the HBO, left wing, Netflix, left wing, Amazon, left wing. We don't control any of these platforms, folks. I mean, when it comes to, like, heavyweight punchers in the media realm, we really, we've got Fox News. Talk radio, thank you very much, and, you know, some, some websites, but we don't have the platforms. And, you know, they're going to get the same information dominance that they had in the past in the pre-internet age because they're going to control all the major portals. You're already seeing this with the social media platforms. But they're going to use, I mean, Obama is going to be the the new democrat media brand in a sense he's going to be political he's going to be cultural he's going to be you know all of the uh all of the media reverence and you know the the intellectual political stuff that they imputed that they kind of pushed for the clintons obama will have all of that but also the you know, the, the media reach and savvy and relationships of, you know, Ellen and Oprah. And I mean, I don't know who's, you know, really big these days, but, he, you know, he might be a producer. He might be, I'm just saying that this is both something to be aware of, wary of, because I think it will have a real impact. And also, oh, now I'm just going to come team. Now I'm just going to complain for a second. I'm just upset about I'm just upset about this. OK, like I like watching Netflix. And when Bill Nye came on, I don't mean to harp on that one, but I'm going to. It was like Netflix. You really got to do me like this. This is how it's got to be now. 
Bill Nye, the not funny, not even real science guy. He's a, he's a mechanical engineer, okay? He runs around in a white coat. I don't know a lot of mechanical engineers that wear a white coat. Uh, but then the sh- and Look, if the show was good, I would admit it. I admit when the left is doing something well, and I usually want to either steal it or copy it or you know, find a way to do it on our side. You know, I, you know, enough with the think tanks. How many of these right-wing billionaires are going to be running around and, and you know, sending big checks? We, we, we've got things. We've got wonderful think tanks. The right wing, we've got policy. We, we're good there. We need competitive media outlets. And I don't just mean news. I mean, I mean entertainment media. You know, we need a, I know this is going to sound crazy. We need a Netflix of the right. And by the way, we can get that. They could license TV shows that are, you know, more in, in the realm of what, you know, traditional America would like to see or traditionalist Americans would like to see. You know, it's, it's not all about the transgender struggle and progressive social justice issues, which is what you see on Amazon and Netflix. You know, we could actually get some older shows that actually, that show, a, uh, you know, traditional struggle of good versus evil. I don't know, stuff like that. And then create some new content. I mean, people keep talking about it, but it doesn't happen. And there's really no excuse now. So I'm putting out the call to all the billionaires who listen to this show. All, I don't know, maybe one or two of you. I have no idea. Uh, We need a Netflix of the right because you're seeing this with Obama. They're going to bring him in. They're going to bring in, you know, Chelsea Clinton. It's just the media political apparatus. The entertainment political apparatus is going to shut us down and drown us out unless we get savvy. All right, we're going to talk about, uh, speaking of media, violent video games coming up after the break. Violent video games. Not something that I spend much time thinking or talking about, but I know that it often comes up when there's one of these terrible shootings, school shooting or, or any number of mass casualty shootings, and, and I usually think to myself, you know, that's just not that's not a solution clearly and i don't think that the people that are opposed to violent video games say it would solve but they just think that it would uh that that there are deeper cultural roots to the problems of some of the violence that we see in our society and and i get that uh but i gotta say you know i grew up this is a part of my life i don't talk all that much about i grew up playing a lot of video games i read a lot of books too but I played a lot of video games. Uh, I was I went through a phase. I'm one of four. I've got two brothers, and I have some cousins also who are, are close to my age. Uh, you know, guy cousins. And man, we all we played video games, and I remember all these different systems. Uh, I had Sega Saturn. My mom was great. You know, she, she tried to spoil the kids a little bit sometimes when she could. And I had Sega Saturn and Turbo Graphic 16, Nintendo, obviously. I mean, Duck Hunt, Duck Hunt for life that game was amazing uh so many of these different consoles over over time and, and, and then eventually playstation and I, i've told you before about fond memories i have of playing sid meyer's civilization and games like medieval total war that i think actually have a really uh, useful impact on the way that people think about strategy i mean at a young age and you learn a bit of history especially medieval total war they base it on all these different military units completely accurate the uh, names of the provinces at this period, the, in medieval time, uh, very accurate. So, you know, if you play that game, you know what a you know what a Gazi is, you know what a Janissary is, you know what 
a gendarme comes from, a French term. This is all, you know, these are all historical uh, data points that are useful, and it's fun to play these games. But when I think of games, that's kind of what I think of. Maybe Street Fighter 2, and, and I'm not somebody who's in favor of banning video games. I'm just opposed to censorship. I, I tend to the more libertarian side of, of arguments whenever it involves content. Uh, but I got to say, I, this is just, I'm not advocating for a policy here. I'm just saying, and if you're going this weekend, you're going to be playing a lot of games. I, I get it. But this montage that they played at the White House for Trump, when they're having this discussion about uh, video games and violent video games, it's the most violent stuff I've ever seen. I mean, it was crazy. I mean, you get people up close and personal with hatchets, literally lopping off heads and it's anatomically correct and there's blood spurting everywhere. It's it's a mess. And I'll say I do. I have my limits. I mean, there are there are shows that are too violent for me. Uh, there are movies that are too violent for me. And, and I grew up watching a lot of action films and stuff. But there's different, you know, there's different levels, right? There's something very different about, let's say, as you know, I love action movies. But Commando, you know, lay off, lay off some steam, Bennett. Um, I, my Schwarzenegger was not good there, but we'll just let that go. No, I can't do it. I can't do it at all. Because people think of Schwarzenegger, you know, because of Conan O'Brien. Oh, you're Schwarzenegger, the governor. That's not really how he sounds in movies, though. So um, sometimes he does. Get to the chopper. But that's different. With Schwarzenegger running around wearing just a tactical vest, nothing, nothing underneath it, and short sleeves, obviously, because that's how he rolls, and firing an M60 one-handed from the hip on a full run and mowing dudes down from 200 yards away, and none of them can hit him, by the way. If you haven't seen Commando, this is actually what happens in it. That's very different than, say, the movie Saw or Hostel or some of these other, I think they call them torture porn, uh, these other incredibly violent and really depraved movies out there I'll tell you, I was actually on a first date once, and a uh, young woman that I was on the date with, this is many, many, this is like over a decade ago, uh, said that you know her favorite movies were all of the Saw movies and Hostel. And I just remember thinking, I don't know if this is going to work out, because <laughs> I thought that was a little intense, you know. I thought that was a bit much. Uh, but, uh, you know, there, there are limits for me. And I don't think that that means that necessarily it translates into policy. I'm just telling you that I was a bit... I was a bit surprised and a, and a little taken aback by just how violent some of these video games really are. And it, it was a surprise to me. I feel like I'm, I'm out of touch with some of these things because I gave up playing video games really after college. And not that I got any problem with it. I mean, I, you know, they're still fun. I, st I still think I'm probably pretty good at them. Played a little bit here and there. Uh, but things have changed with them. And they're so hyper-realistic now in the graphics and the... The first-person aspect of these games also is so... It's already so close to virtual reality. I feel like that's one of the reasons why virtual reality hasn't taken off more. Because you play these first-person games, and you're already... You know, it's like you're storming the beaches of Normandy there, right? In your head. I mean, you're... Uh, you know, all these different Call of Duty games, and... I didn't play much of those. I'm trying to think of my... My, my real first-person shooter... Uh, you know, Awakening... That's a good way to put it. Was GoldenEye on Nintendo 64. I played that with my friends when we were in maybe early high school so much. And that was a great game at the time. 
And that was my first time. I was like, wow, first-person shooter is really... But that's... If you look at that now, it looks like it's from another... It looks like it's from the Stone Age or something. It's not not nearly as advanced as stuff they have now. So I, I just looked at this montage, and it's up on uh, different sites that they showed the president, just with the most graphic stuff from video games you could find. And i got to say, I was a little... Wow, that's actually really violent. I was a little... Uh, you know, taking it back is actually a nautical term for when the wind shifts and it hits the sail at an angle that all of a sudden kind of makes the boat uh, slow or even feel like it comes to a stop. Taking it back. But I, I thought it was, uh, yeah, it's a little much, it was a little more than I had expected. I will say that. And I don't think that necessarily factors into any policy recommendations, although it does make me think more about what is going on in the culture. You know, some things... I think we can we can at least advocate for a certain level of decorum and taste and, you know, that that's and so I'll, I guess that's what I'm doing. I'm not saying ban super violent movies or video games. I'm just saying I wouldn't let my kids play the most violent video games. I would hold off on that until a little later on. Uh, I don't have kids yet, so this is easy for me to say. But, you know, I'm thinking about uh what that would be like and yeah that's the, the violent video games I, w- I would pretty much put a put a hold on that you know there were movies i was allowed to see action movies that were rated r but you know i didn't watch a lot of at least not till i got into high school i, I wasn't allowed to watch things you know that came out uh, in the theaters and everybody if you remember basic instinct that was a very violent very uh graphic movie not just with violence you know, I wasn't allowed to see that. You know, there were limitations. There were limitations that uh, certainly were in place when I was a young, you know, a teenager. So I've just changed my thinking a little bit on the video games. It's, we've come a long way from Sid Meier's Civilization, where the worst thing you'd see is Montezuma getting really upset at Genghis Khan. All right, we'll hit a quick break. We come back. I've got some thoughts from Savannah and then some roll call. Stay with me. I have had a great time down here in Savannah, Georgia. I love this place. I'm going to find every excuse I can to come and visit. And also want to thank our uh, iHeart affiliate here, uh, WTKC. They have been so generous and and warm and and helped me out here, making sure that I've got a great studio uh, for my, my days visiting in Savannah. And so thank you to all, all the folks here. And, and also just had a great time uh, visiting with our friends at Nine Line Apparel and Black Rifle Coffee. Got to hang out with both of them. And actually, I'm hoping that tomorrow I'll be able to get out to the Nine Line facility again. Uh, today, I, I took a tour with uh, the CEO and some of his uh, some of his corporate officers to go check it out. Uh, Tyler Merritt and his crew also got to see Evan Hafer of Black Rifle and, and Matt Best because they've opened up a franchise inside of the Nine Line Apparel store it's an incredible facility they've got out here, just outside of Georgia, uh, outside of Georgia, outside of Savannah, about 15, 20 minutes from downtown, maybe 20 minutes. And uh, it's a really cool facility. So I, I very much enjoyed getting to see all them today. And some members of Team Buck showed up. I just want to say thank you so much to uh, all of them for deciding to uh, to make the trek. Some of you were in the neighborhood. Some of you drove quite a bit. I saw some... Uh, I saw some Freedom Hut T-shirts in effect, and to those of you that made uh, made the trip, I, I really do appreciate it. And you made me look good in front of Miss Molly, who was with me today. Uh, she came out too and saw everybody out at the uh, Nine Line store. So, all in all, very very successful day. Really enjoyed myself. And tomorrow morning, 
Uh, Saturday morning, I'm planning on going out again to the Nine Line facility. Uh, it's re- they've got a factory, they've got a store. It's incredible. Folks, if you're within driving distance, they're going to be basically throwing a big party tomorrow. And I'm planning to be out there tomorrow, Saturday morning. I'll get there around probably 9.30 a.m. Uh, so that's the plan. Uh, so if you wanted to just go check out some great gear, Matt Best will be there. There's probably going to be a line of like 4,000 people uh, just to see Matt. And uh, it's just going to be really fun. So you can come uh, check it out with uh, all, all the rest of us. Uh, they had today a bouncy castle for the kids. So it's a family event. They got a bouncy castle for the kids. They had Clydesdale horses, drawing uh, horse-drawn carriage, taking people on carriage tours. All kinds of food trucks with delicious food, barbecue, burgers, you, you know, you name it. And uh, they, they really do it right, man. These guys, the Black Rifle and Nine Line guys know exactly uh, what they're doing. It was a really fun event today. And I got to drink some delicious iced coffee. Miss Molly was so happy. She goes, I don't think they're going to have almond milk because, you know, she doesn't really drink the cow milk. And which I just refer to as milk because that's true. And hopefully Miss Molly's not listening to this because she might yell at me. But they have almond milk at the nine. I mean, well, at nine line slash black rifle because it's delicious coffee and they want to make sure that all their customers are happy. So really good time today. And I thank uh, those folks as well. So it's it's we got a whole a whole squad of, of thanks that I'm giving out uh, WTKS, the uh, iHeart um, affiliate here in Savannah, Georgia, also nine line and black rifle. And then just a quick, before we get into some roll call, uh, a little little fun story for you. I I took a drive. I'm pulling a Tom Friedman here, uh, but this this is actually a good one. I took a drive over here, and I I took uh, an Uber, as is my my habit. And the gentleman who drove me over here was uh, really uh, insightful and and, and nice and friendly dude. And we're talking a little bit, and I think he was surprised because I— have some I have some knowledge of some places of the world that are surprising to folks. So when he said when he started talking and I said, you're from West Africa, you're you're, you're from Nigeria, aren't you? And he says, yeah, yeah. How'd you know? I said, well, what part of the country are you from? And he and he told me, he said, I'm from the southeast. I said, oh, you must be Igbo. And he goes, you know, my tribe, too. I said, sir, I'm a man who knows many things. And we had a great conversation about politics. And I love it. This guy told me. I'm not going to use his name just because, you know, he's a civilian. I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to bring him in this, but he might be listening because he download. he's now a subscriber to the Buck Sexton show. We, by the end of our ride, I, I turned him into a subscriber. So, uh, you know, here we have a legal immigrant to the country who is uh, highly educated, highly motivated, really great conversationalist, fun guy to talk to. And he is a Republican, my friends. That's right. He's like, what is it with people that are hating on Donald Trump? He's like, you know, uh, people tell me these things about how he's racist. He's like, he's not racist. Why do people say this? And I was like, I don't know, man. It's crazy. Isn't it? He goes, yeah. Because what's with Hillary? Hillary's no good. I'm like, I know. He's like, it's, I'm not saying that she's inhuman or anything. She's just not very, not particularly easy to relate to as a human. I said, yeah, that's very astute analysis, my friend. So we had a really good chat, but it was just great to talk to somebody down here in Savannah who um, is representative, I think, of this new type of Trump voter, new type of Republican. Just people that are like, you know what? The economy is good. Things are going well. You know, you can't trust the mainstream media. You can't trust some of these big outlets. And I said, sir, I I couldn't agree with you more, man. We had a really, 
a really fun chat. So it's, as you can get a sense, I think, from my tone, it's just been a really good visit uh, down here in Savannah. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of this place. I'm a big fan of New Orleans. I mean, I'm going to be hitting up Austin pretty soon. Definitely hitting up, already on the schedule, those of you who are listening on WoWo, I will be out in Fort Wayne, Indiana in about three weeks uh, for Talk Tank, which is an event that that, uh, that excellent affiliate, uh, WOWO, will be putting on. So if you can, come to that, and I'll be hanging out all day. So if you want to chat, no Miss Molly for that one, though. Miss, it was kind of a special treat for the folks today that came out from the team, including some original Saturday squad, that Miss Molly was in effect. That usually doesn't happen. Uh, but she, sure enough, was there for this one. So uh, great time down here. As soon as I'm done with the show, I'm going to be uh, hanging out with some of our friends uh, from the veteran community who are involved in Black, uh, Black Rifle Coffee and Nine Lines. So we're going to have quite a night. I'm glad I do not have a radio show tomorrow morning because that will be pretty tough. And that's, uh, that's, that's my story. And for now, I'm just sticking to it. Uh, it should be fun. I'm going to go into a quick break. When I come back, we will do... The actual roll call that I promised you we would do. So we'll hear from all of you. So stay with me back in just a few quick minutes. All right, live from Savannah, Georgia, WTKC. This is our Friday, uh, well, Freestyle Friday roll call. Hey, Team Buck, it's time for roll call. I feel like that music gets us all fired up and ready for the weekend, at least for those of you that, that dig it. Some of you are probably like, Buck, why don't you stick to the classic rock, my friend? You should probably not play too much dubstep. People might be like, that's not really my thing. Um, so first up here, oh, wow, that's great. We got uh, Eric, who sent me a photo of the two of us hanging out at the Nine Line store here in Georgia, because he just posted this up on Facebook. He said, thanks for taking the time, brother. Sorry I couldn't stay and talk. Had to pick up my daughter from school. Well, Eric, I totally understand, my friend. Thank you very much for coming out. Um, and let's get to uh, the next one here, because other than that, it's just a photo. It was a great photo. Eric, great to meet you. Uh, Seth writes, hey, Buck, podcast listener here. Just wanted to let you know that I enjoy your occasional rants about things that bother you. They're educational and hilarious. Well, Seth, first of all, thank you for your note. And since you've opened the door, I'm going to walk through it. So I happened to check into a hotel here in downtown Savannah. The hotel will remain unnamed. Uh, but they told me when I'm checking in, oh... There's some construction going on inside the hotel. They're doing some renovations. And I said, okay, well, where is it? And they said, well, it's kind of in a few places. And, and I said, well, I'm just going to tell you right now, I am a grumpy old man when it comes to uh, unnecessary noise. And this is going to be a situation where I'm going to need you to put me as far as possible from the noise. And the uh, young woman at the front desk I mean, I think actually she's my age, but I'm just going to say the young woman at the front desk said, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, whatever, and kind of hustled me through the check-in process. I said, well, I think we're going to have, and I said, you know, maybe we should take a little bit of a peek here and see what, what rooms are available. She says, no, no, I, I think you'll be fine. I said, hmm. I said, well, why do you, why do you take that opinion? Well, because we're totally sold out, so this is your only room option. Hmm. So I go up, and sure enough, I get to the room, and it sounds like someone is taking a, a jackhammer to the wall, and I said, you know... 
this is not really going to work for me. It's not really what I signed up for. So I go downstairs and I have to go through this whole thing of, look, I'm I am unfailingly polite for the first few exchanges when I'm annoyed about something. But I know that there is a place that they can put me that's not the there's no way that this place has no rooms that I just I refuse to believe that it is 100 percent occupied. And sure enough, I got to get somebody else to come out and they had to do the whole, you know, clack, 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 you know, pressing all the different buttons on the computer. And yes, indeed. Oh, there is a room that's far, far away from all of the noise that they could have given me. So my thing that annoys me is whenever you are trying to change either your hotel room, your plane ticket, whatever it may be, and the initial reaction is to tell you that there's nothing they can do. And then you find out, because I know that that is true sometimes. That is true sometimes. On planes, it's often the case, right? I feel bad for the, uh, well, actually, that's not true. I rarely feel bad for the people that are dealing with you on an airline because uh, the airlines are, they need, a, they need a swift kick in the butt a lot of the time. I'm just going to say it. But uh, I do feel badly for the man or woman that stands there and has all the all the rage directed at them when there are flight cancellations and everything else, and people think that they can move them and they can't. But when they can, when you tell me there's no other seat option, or when you tell me there's no other room option, or there's no other table at a restaurant, and then I have to find out that that wasn't true, which I basically always end up finding out, can't we just skip that step? Can I please talk to your supervisor? Can I please talk to your manager? I don't want to do that. I'm a very reasonable guy, you know, a little curmudgeonly, but very reasonable. So there you go, Seth. There's one thing that uh, that bothers me a little bit. Um, that would be, oh, 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 now you got me. Go I know I'm, I'm completely interrupting our roll call here for I'm, I'm interrupting our previously scheduled programming. Another thing, folks, I don't know how else to say this, but the things that go in your car that you hang from the dashboard that you think smell good. Uh, you become accustomed to it because you're in the car for a long time and you think maybe it smells nice. But for anyone who's not spending that time in the vehicle as much as you are, it is an overpowering smell. And I don't actually necessarily want to get into a vehicle and feel like I am being face dunked into a tank of pine needles and lemon. You know, I, I don't need that. It's not good. So the smell that you want in a vehicle it's just clean vehicle smell, which doesn't really smell like anything, and that's what you want. I am very opposed to, and I actually know people that will tell you those chemicals they use to create those smelly tree things that they put in cars are very are, are, are noxious. They're not good for you. I'm not sure if I take that route. I just think they smell bad. And I go in some parts of the country, and they're very common. I just go, hmm, I don't understand this. It's a little overpowering, particularly the... The, the fruit smells. Uh, so that's another thing that annoys me. And I don't really need to feel like someone's taken cherries and shoved them up my nose. And if you're, especially you're in kind of a long drive, that's not fun. All right. That's an, I'm going to, Seth, see, you open the door for me to complain. I'm like, here I go. Uh, next up, Erica on roll call. Buck, I think you belong in the South. Your love of y'all, boat shoes, kindness, Keeping it casual is very much in keeping with the low country style. OSS in Charleston. Enjoy Savannah. Well, thank you so much, Erica. I love Charleston, too. So I'm going to find we have an affiliate in Charleston. So I'm going to have to come down there for a market visit and go visit our, our great affiliate in Charleston. Uh, but yeah, it's funny. People in New York actually often say that I seem 
I have a, a somewhat southern, uh, I don't know, I, was, I don't know what the word would be, vibe, maybe, even though obviously I don't sound southern at all, uh, but the name is Buck, and so that's, you start with that. I do like boat shoes. I have long, kind of f- f- poofy, floppy hair, and I used to wear uh, seersucker pants just all the time because I thought they were comfortable. I didn't realize that was seersucker pants and flip-flops, actually, which I have since found out is like southern fraternity boy standard issue uh, but my family is partially from the south so maybe that's where i i get some of my dad's side of the family has a whole lot of kentucky and virginia in the background so there you go um next up here duke he writes buck you're right even when you think you're wrong you're right trust trump i voted for mcmullen <laughs> oh duke buddy hey look we all make mistakes, my friend. I would not have made the McMullen move myself. I've, I had Evan on radio. I was very fair to him as a, uh, as a radio host, I think. I asked him questions. He's clearly uh, an intelligent fellow, and I think he's well-intentioned. I think with the anti-Trump stuff, he's gone way too far. And to the point where I can't even have a, based on his positions, I can't even have a constructive conversation with him. And he gets a little Comey-esque with the, you know, the country was founded on the principles of honesty and integrity and Trump is destroying all of it. I'm like, you know, let's, let's, try, to look at, let's try to look at big picture here. So that's, uh, that's where I am on all that. Um, Stan, next up here, and... Uh, uh, he writes, hey, Buck, I've really been enjoying your show in Austin, Texas. Well, Stan, speaking of wonderful affiliates and visits, uh, KLBJ in Austin is one of the radio stations that has been kind enough to add the Freedom Hut, to add the Buck Sexton show to its lineup. And uh, we are honored. And I really hope that the folks in Austin are enjoying the show. And I, I will admit, I have yet to go to Austin my whole life. I've spent so much time in Dallas because of the blaze. So a lot of. I've logged you know, lots of man hours in Texas, but just not in Austin, which is a place I really want to go to. So I'm going to go check it out, actually. I'm going to go check out KLBJ in Austin as soon as I can. We'll do an event down there. Barbecue. Barbecue and Buck. There you, you know what? That's the name of our event right there. Barbecue and Buck. We just stumbled on it. We're geniuses, folks. See what we do? See the magic that we make happen? So uh, there we go. Thank you so much, Dan. Please spread the word to uh, your friends in Austin to, to tune in on, on KLBJ. And that's going to be it, unfortunately, for the show for this Freestyle Friday. Uh, I think uh, we've, we've covered a lot of territory today. I hope you've all had as much fun as I have. I am going to be go meeting up with some folks and friends on the uh, waterfront here to go chill with some of our uh, nine line and black rifle and miss molly and the whole squad so i'll try to put out some photos tonight if you see me on the waterfront team down here in savannah come by and say hi maybe we can drink uh, some mezcal together until next time from down in the south shields high